Hello and welcome to Life Before Medicine. I am your host today, Heather Dipke, and I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Bruce Crawford, the other host of Life Before Medicine. And, and we are going to be talking today about pelvic organ prolapse. Now, one thing we want to say right out of the gate is that Dr. Crawford is not your physician, so this is purely for educational purposes only, and it should not be considered medical advice, treatment, diagnostics. Again, this is just for educational purposes, and he is not a substitute for your own physician. So are you ready, Dr. Crawford? I am ready. Nice disclaimer. Nice display. Now we can say anything. I love it. Good. So one of the things I think we should probably get out of the way first is we we know you are a board certified urogynecologist. True. Can you give us a little bit more info about you, just in case people are only tuning in for the first time? Right. I don't. I don't think people really know what a urogynecologist is for the most part, and it wasn't really a thing. At least it wasn't a board-recognized thing until 2013, I believe. And then the uh, Board of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Board for Urologists recognized this new subspecialty that focused on pelvic floor medicine, disorders of the pelvic floor, and reconstructive surgery. Now, at that time, there was a lot of us that had already been practicing this subspecialty, and we were able to grandfather in after you know submitting a whole bunch of paperwork and case lists and taking an exam and whatnot, and um, and so now it's a real recognized thing. And if you have a pelvic floor disorder, if you need surgery, then probably a urogynecologist is the best way to go. Okay, so how would that differ then from just seeing a urologist or just seeing a gynecologist? Right. Well, it really speaks to additional training and experience. There's a recent study, actually, out of, I think it was out of the University of Wisconsin, just published in the last month or two, that looked at the risk of complications following vaginal reconstructive surgery, and it's substantially 30 40% lower when a urogynecologist does it. And indeed, failure rates uh, seem to be lower as well. And so that makes sense if you're, you know, really concentrating on this particular area of medicine and doing it more often than a generalist would be able to, and you probably are going to have better results. And so um, that is a, uh, uh, most, most of the urogynecologists in the world were trained as obstetrician gynecologists. There's some that were trained as urologists, um, but they all have focused on female pelvic floor medicine, and a um, reconstructive surgery. And so um, it's a valuable asset to have in the medical community. Absolutely. So that's why we're talking to you today, because you are our resident expert. What is pelvic organ prolapse exactly? Right. So this is a confusing term for people. But the fact of the matter is, and, and we're really speaking about the female population here, is all of the pelvic organs bladder, the uterus, the rectum, um, are surrounded by this connective tissue called fascia. Maybe you've heard that term before, but what fascia is, is basically a, um, a strong connective tissue, a fibrous tissue that 
surrounds an organ and attaches to the sides of the pelvis, basically, and holds that particular organ in its proper position. Now, listeners to this podcast probably know that the thing that protects that fascia from injury um, is a high-performance pelvic floor, a pelvic floor that works with enough strength and enough speed to create a favorable dynamic during coughing, sneezing, laughing, running, jumping, lifting, such that the connective tissue gets protected. When the pelvic floor is weak, um, the uh, connective tissue is vulnerable. And over time, it's a cumulative effect, usually measured in years or even decades, over time, that connective tissue can fail, allowing the organ that was once well-supported to descend toward the vaginal opening and then presenting itself, usually uh, described by patients as a bulge or, you know, discovered in the shower most commonly. And it can be very frightening. Now, it doesn't tend to be a dangerous problem. It can be very frightening to discover it, and it can be uncomfortable to live with, and for that reason, hundreds of thousands of surgeries are performed every year to correct this problem. Well, and you know, Dr. Crawford, I struggled with prolapse myself, and mine came about as a result of having nerve damage during childbirth. What are some of the other um, reasons why pelvic organ prolapse could occur? Right. Well, it seems that vaginal childbirth is the major risk factor. We know that vaginal childbirth is associated with injury to the nerves that go to the pelvic floor and to the pelvic floor muscles themselves. There seem to be some other risk factors as well. Um, Age may uh, be a risk factor. Um, We know that um, the number of children you have, the size of those children, and even your weight, being obese um, or even significantly overweight, seems like it may be a risk factor as well for developing pelvic organ prolapse. So if someone has pelvic organ prolapse, you are a urogynecologist, and you mentioned that you can have a uterine prolapse, you can have a bladder prolapse. Would someone with a rectal prolapse see you, or would that be a different specialist? Right. I'm glad you asked that question because there's kind of a misunderstanding of terms. The term rectal prolapse to your doctor means that the rectum is prolapsing through the anal canal. Now, there's this thing that urogynecologists tend to treat called a rectocele, which fortunately is much more common than rectal prolapse, which tends to be um, more difficult uh, to deal with, I think, surgically and in terms of a uh, recurrence rate. A rectocele is when that connective tissue over the top of the rectum, under the back wall of the vagina, separates from the surrounding tissues and allows a pocket to form in the top wall of the rectum that over time can manifest as a bulge or make it difficult to have a bowel movement without splinting the back wall of the vagina with your finger. A rectal prolapse, which is sort of this telescoping effect of the rectum and sometimes the sigmoid colon too, through the anal canal, um, is a uh, much more of an urgent medical problem and would generally be treated by a colorectal surgeon, mm, either okay. with a repair from, done from below, basically removing the prolapsed portion of the rectum and sigmoid colon and, and then reattaching things, but more commonly and I think more successfully done 
through the abdomen, um, generally laparoscopically or robotically now, to basically pull that uh, segment of bowel back up where it belongs inside your pelvic cavity, um, and then securing it to the front of the sacrum with a, um, some strong materials and sutures. And that seems to be a more reliable, albeit more invasive, uh, approach to the surgery. So is surgery always then required if someone has pelvic organ prolapse? No. If you have a cystocele, if you have uterine prolapse, if you have a rectocele, as I mentioned, these aren't dangerous problems. They tend to be quality of life issues that can cause or be associated with bladder dysfunction. It can be associated with a certain amount of discomfort, um, especially once that bulge progresses past the vaginal opening. It can be associated with difficulty having bowel movements. But there are conservative ways of addressing this as long as it's not too advanced when you start addressing it. If the prolapse is mild or even moderate, there are things that can be done like a effective pelvic floor rehabilitation program like the Filates method um, can mitigate symptoms, it seems. It can make the discomfort and symptoms associated with the prolapse more manageable or even resolve altogether. Um, there's another uh, conservative option called pessary device. Pessary device generally is a silicon disc that comes in all kinds of crazy shapes and sizes, but the most common one is a disc um, that can be inserted in the vagina, generally removed by the patient, reinserted by the patient, and it mechanically kind of holds everything up where it belongs. Now, the use of pessary devices um, is not um, probably what it should be. They probably should be utilized more. But when you look at studies on the long-term success of pessary devices, when the patient tries it, the the long-term success rate with pessary devices is only about 10%. So of hmm. all the patients that try it, only about 1 in 10 actually use it for months or years. Why do you think that is? I think that, well, the pessary devices um, aren't even always successful in the immediate term. They can fall out. They can be uncomfortable. You can develop some erosions within the vagina where the pessary rubs on the vaginal skin and can make an ulcer, and if neglected, that can actually become quite a serious problem. Um, if it's properly managed, that, pro that probably isn't going to happen, and by properly managed, I mean the patient knows what the warning signs would be and has a regular scheduled follow-up, usually every three months, with the doctor that placed the pessary device to remove it, make sure that it's not irritating the vagina in any way, reinserting it, and making sure that it's still providing the beneficial effect that was intended. Interesting. Okay, so if someone tries and then opts out of the pessary, or maybe they don't want to do the pessary, you mentioned the Filates program. Right. And, and, you know, the data that shows the beneficial effect of pelvic floor exercise is not based on Filates. It's based on a much more traditional, I would say, old-fashioned way of exercising the pelvic floor that is less efficient than the Filates method, but nonetheless still showed that symptoms can be reduced or resolved if a regular program of pelvic floor fitness training is... Um, uh, established. And, and so it's encouraging. And I think before you go to sleep in the operating room, it's probably worth giving a try because there's all kinds of other benefits from that as well. 
right? Mm. Improve bladder function, improve sexual response, um, reducing the risk of developing or, um, bowel control problem. There's all kinds of other important things that the pelvic floor does, aside from protecting the connective tissue that supports the pelvic organs. And so, you know, honestly, whether you have pelvic organ prolapse or not, you should have a program of pelvic floor fitness training that occupies at least five minutes a day of uh, your day. And if you have symptoms related to a weak pelvic floor, five minutes twice a day may be necessary to uh, help resolve those symptoms. So that's a great point, Dr. Crawford, because optimally, if you could prevent having pelvic organ prolapse in the first place, that's the most ideal scenario. Um, so as you talk about the Filates program um, and other kind of non-invasive ways that we can work with prevention or even helping treat more mild forms of prolapse, if someone is at one of those later stages that you're talking about and surgery is the only option for them, is it going to work forever? Would they maybe have to have a repeat surgery? What's the success rate? Right. And, and so the answer to that question, it really kind of depends on, well, as I already mentioned, who performs the surgery, but also what surgery was performed and how advanced your stage of prolapse was when you had the surgery. Now, if you have stage three, which is a more severe form of prolapse that probably Pilates and any other pelvic floor exercise isn't going to resolve and it's unbearable, and the pessary's failed, and you said, okay, I'm going to have this repaired, it's not a guarantee that that repair is going to work forever. In fact, there have been some studies to show that of women who have a prolapse repaired, there's about a one in three chance they're going to have another prolapse surgery at some point in their life. Now, that may speak to the generalized neglect of the pelvic floor and postoperative pelvic floor training and strengthening to help protect the repair, um, but it, you know, it also may speak to just the limitations as to how much uh, improvement people can achieve in terms of a, a severely damaged pelvic floor. Um, and so if you have a ad more advanced stage when you have your prolapse surgery, you're more likely to have a recurrence. If you're younger when you have your prolapse surgery, you're more likely to have a recurrence. What's interesting is when you're, we're talking about risk factors for prolapse and recurrence, what's interesting is that, well, maybe not surprisingly, cesarean section is protective. And smoking also is protective, believe it or not. Not recommending people start smoking to avoid uh, pelvic organ prolapse, but in, you know, a whole bunch of studies looking at pelvic organ prolapse, smoking seems to offer a protective effect. Hmm. Interesting. I've never heard that before. Um, so if someone does have to have surgery, what are some of the complications that might arise from that? Right. Well, you know, anytime the, anytime anyone has surgery, infection is always a possibility. Um, now, surgery done through the vagina, which is referred to as a clean contaminated space, meaning there's lots of normal healthy bacteria that live in the vagina all the time. You need that bacteria. But if you make an incision in the skin of the vagina and then dissect out spaces and suture it back together and bacteria gets in those spaces, it's possible to get an infection. And, and the risk is probably higher than if you made an incision in this, you know, the skin of the abdomen or your arm or something that, that could be prepped more thoroughly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, urinary tract infection is probably the most common um, post-operative complication that usually is easily treated and of no long-term consequence. Unfortunately, um, some women do develop pain problems after pelvic reconstructive surgery, pains that can ma- pain that can make intercourse uncomfortable. Hmm. And in some instances, that's not resolvable. And so that needs to be understood um, before embarking upon and consenting to a surgical procedure. Pain problems uh, may be more common after the implantation of permanent synthetic mesh. Um, And among women that have had vaginal mesh inserted, probably only about 50% are are going to resolve their pain problem, even if the mesh is removed. Mm, so that's another thing that you'd want to talk to your doctor about um, okay. before consent. So if someone thinks they might have pelvic organ prolapse or maybe they already know they do, what are some important questions that they should be talking to their doctor about? Well, one is, are you a urogynecologist? Presumably they already know that if they're talking to them. Um, another important question you know, would be talking about the various different approaches to the reconstruction. Now, if you're addressing um, prolapse at the very top of the vagina, the highest portion of the vagina, which is dropped towards or beyond the vaginal opening, the most successful, most reliable procedure, which actually does involve using a piece of uh, mesh, um, is called a sacral copopexy. And I think it's probably one of the applications of the... Um, surgical robot that that is an improvement from how we used to do the procedure. You can do it laparoscopically, um, but I've done it both ways, and the robot probably is better for that. And it's definitely better than a giant abdominal incision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's lots of other things that the robot is used for where it's of questionable advantage, but the sacral copopexy is probably uh, the best. Uh, is best done by an experienced robotic surgeon. And the learning curve for uh, robotic surgery isn't like you do two or three or 10 or even 20, and then you're just as good as everyone else. It seems to be kind of a flat learning curve. Like it takes a lot of cases before you're proficient, really proficient. And so you'd want to say how many of these have you done, if uh, and assuming you're going to have the sacral copopexy and your physician is a a trained robotic surgeon. How many of you done is a is a pretty reasonable question, and you're and you're looking for like, you know, a hundred something like that, um, and a uh, so that'd be important. But you'd also want before making a decision to have you know, albeit robotic surgery is less invasive than open surgery through a big incision. It's still um, an abdominal procedure, you know, which does confer some risk to other abdominal structures like the intestines and whatnot and, and blood vessels in the abdomen, which can be quite large. Um, those things are very uncommon, fortunately. But if you do the procedure through the vagina from below, you do mitigate some of that risk. Now, it's not risk-free when performed vaginally, but it is easier to, uh, probably easier to recover from 
um, and also um, probably not as reliably successful um, as, because this, the sacral copopexy with a piece of mesh is a super physiologic procedure. It actually creates support that was stronger than it was before you developed prolapse, right? Oh, okay. And, and so it's a way, you can think about it this way, it's a way of compensating for an ongoing pelvic floor defect that allowed this situation to occur in the first place. So your connective tissue had a certain amount of strength, the pelvic floor got weak and slow, couldn't protect that connective tissue to develop the prolapse. Rather than strengthening the pelvic floor, which may not even be possible to some threshold that would protect the original um, strength of the connective tissue, they put in a stronger tissue, which is this permanent synthetic mesh, and create a super physiologic repair. And um, that's probably why it's more durable. Hmm, interesting, yeah. So we've talked about how important prevention is, and I just want to circle back to that a little bit. I think it would help listeners. What is the incidence? Like, you know, most people might think, well, I don't have pelvic organ prolapse. What's the probability that a woman might, over the course of her lifetime, develop pelvic organ prolapse? Well, if she's had children vaginally, the probability is pretty high. It's a little bit hard to measure these things because so many patients go untreated right? But having said that, if you're looking at women in the 40 to 65 year old age range, as many as 40% may have moderate or more or more severe pelvic organ prolapse. So it's extremely common. Yeah, and that is you, common. If you include mild prolapse, you know, almost, well, I wouldn't say almost every, but I would say the majority of women that have had a single vaginal childbirth have some measurable, identifiable degree of prolapse. If it's mild, she may not be aware of it and may be of absolutely no consequence to her in terms of her quality of life. Interesting. So if a lot of women might have various degrees of pelvic organ prolapse, does it impact them? Like, would they have any type of sexual dysfunction that could occur as a result of that? Yeah, it, it kind of depends. If it's uterine prolapse and the cervix has dropped way down in the vagina or all the way to the opening of the vagina or even beyond, it can create a mechanical problem um, in terms of having intercourse. Um, but I think it's more likely that the thing that causes sexual dissatisfaction among women with prolapse is the same thing that allowed the prolapse to occur in the first place. It's that the pelvic floor isn't working properly. The influence of the pelvic floor muscles and the nerves from those muscles that go to the spinal cord and influence the autonomic nerves that regulate sexual response in terms of engorgement of erectile tissue and orgasm um, are damaged. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and if they haven't been rehabilitated, they can have a kind of broad range of effect. One is putting you at risk for prolapse. But another one is difficulty with arousal and difficulty achieving orgasm. And another one might be stress urinary incontinence, leakage of urine with coughing, sneezing, laughing. And another one is overactive bladder, fearful experience that you won't get to the bathroom quick enough when you get the urge to go. And another one is anal incontinence. And so you can see there's this huge spectrum of effect that the uh, pelvic floor has on our genital urinary uh, functioning, our bowel functioning, our sexual functioning, and indeed pelvic organ prolapse as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
So that's really interesting. So you talked about a female's first symptom of prolapse might be feeling the sensation of a bulge. Are there other symptoms that they might notice as well? Right. So I mentioned also that with rectocele, you might have trapping of uh, stool within the last portion of the rectum, just above the anal canal that has to be decompressed while trying to have a bowel movement to kind of redirect that ball of stool towards the uh, anal canal and the outside world. And so that's called splinting. And so there's some defecation dysfunction that can be associated with having a rectocele. Um, A cystocele... Um, can make complete bladder emptying difficult if the bulge is moderate or severe. Um, And there's some debate as to whether or not that pretends risk for urinary tract infection. I think it probably does. Um, In addition to that, you know, if someone has a more than moderate prolapse and that prolapse is quote-unquote, down most of the time, meaning the bulge is present most of the time. It can rub on clothing. It can get irritated, ulcerated, infected, bleed. Um, and, and all of that is, is, you know, those are the kinds of symptoms that would certainly make you want to have this problem treated somehow, right, I, in that instance, either with pessary device or surgery. Absolutely. Well, this has been really interesting, Dr. Crawford. I get to work with you a lot, which is always a pleasure. Uh, So I really appreciate hearing you talk a little bit more in depth about pelvic organ prolapse. Is there any last remaining thoughts you want to leave our listeners with in regards to this topic? Yeah, you know, I think we have a hard time getting people enthusiastic about preventing things, you know. It's like, you know, being focused on preventative medicine can be a little bit unsatisfying because in some ways you never really know if you did any good for anyone or not. How do you know when someone doesn't get something? Right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard, right. to, hard right. to measure when you don't get something, right? And American medicine has been so focused on acuity. Like you get sick, we're on it. You get into an accident and have a trauma, we're on it. You get cancer, we're on it. But we don't talk that much about how do I prevent the accident? How do I prevent cancer? How do I prevent, you know, the acute illness that really ignites the American healthcare system? You know, because we have a, you know, we are greatly influenced by the pharmaceutical industry, the medical device industry, and a, uh, you know, preventive preventative uh, medicine just isn't that exciting, right? It's not that... Mm -hmm. Um, arousing to you know be uh, involved. <laughs> Good in. use of word, indeed. And and but it's so important. It's so important. I often mention that the loss of bladder and bowel control are the gr- uh, single greatest influencer of a decision to institutionalize an elderly woman. Well, you know, you've got to do something now to make mm-hmm. sure your dignity and independence is preserved in your 70s, in your 80s, right? You just don't want to allow that to happen, and that is going to have to involve some degree of prevention. And so, Absolutely. you know, it's not well, a... you, I've heard you say that before, yeah. that that's the biggest reason a female gets put into a nursing facility as they age, and I found that inspiring because I don't think any of us aspire to wanting to end up in a nursing home. So, you know, if you can live independently as long as possible, that's the most ideal situation. So, yeah. That is what we believe. 
And it takes some effort. You know, it doesn't take a lot of effort. No. It takes a small amount of consistent effort. That, mm-hmm. And so therein lies the rub. Human consistency is the pearl of great price and very challenging for most of us, right? It does. It takes a while to develop a habit where right. you're able to do something consistently every day. I use the Pilates program, as you know, um, and not only have I been able to kind of repair the nerve damage that I had. I no longer have incontinence. I no longer have prolapse, but I also do the exercises every day because I don't want to regress. Right, right, right. And I think a program like Pilates that involves movement is just more practicable. A program like Pilates that's based on scientific research, extensive EMG studies of the effects of movement on the pelvic floor that we've been applying for over a decade now, and we I think we kind of know how to do it now. We've, I think we've kind of figured it out. You know, I think, uh, yeah, I feel good about it. Right? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you give it? Right? Should give it a try, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll include that website, the Pilates website, in the link for listeners that are just tuning oh, awesome. in. That'd be great. So that they can kind of find us if that has sparked their interest. We do offer a webinar once every month soon to become a self-paced webinar that you'll be able to do at your leisure in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. So if anyone's interested in wanting a non-invasive option for pelvic organ prolapse, we have that for you. Outstanding. (laughs) Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for talking to us today. And we look forward to seeing everyone next week on our next episode. Awesome. Thank you, Heather. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk soon. Bye.